Hello, and welcome to the Stanford University Press Podcast. My name is Chris Gondek, and today I'm speaking with Michael Russo, the author of Companies on a Mission, Entrepreneurial Strategies for Growing Sustainably, Responsibly, and Profitably. Michael Russo is the Charles H. Lundquist Professor of Sustainable Management at the University of Oregon. He's an award-winning researcher focusing on strategies for social impact and environmental management. He's the editor of Environmental Management, Readings and Cases. Mike Russo, thanks so much for taking time to talk to Stanford University Press Podcast today. My pleasure, Chris. So the name of the book is Companies on a Mission, Entrepreneurial Strategies for Growing Sustainably, Responsibly, and Profitably. Uh, the first thing I would ask is, what's the difference between being a mission-driven company, which is what your book is about, and a company that has a mission statement? Well, most companies have mission statements, and uh, essentially it's a semantic difference. Uh, mission statements are more a reflection of the company's purpose. Uh, often uh, they define where the company will compete, uh, in what industries, and with what products. So mission statements, though, typically position financial returns as the primary, uh, if not the only, goal of the company. Uh, a mission-driven company, uh, as I use it in the book, refers to companies that explicitly seek multiple goals uh, simultaneously. Uh, typically, They'll seek to meet not only financial, but also social and environmental goals. Uh, And the goals are deeply rooted in the values and the culture of those mission-driven companies. But what's fascinating, and and to me what was uh, really inspirational as I wrote the book, is how these companies have found ways to determine how to integrate strategies for meeting the so-called triple bottom line. The subtitle of the book is Entrepreneurial Strategies for Growing Sustainably, Responsibly, and Profitably. Does that mean this book is only written for entrepreneurs? You know, it's written for a number of overlapping audiences uh, that are interested in how society's needs are increasingly being recast as opportunities for private enterprise. So certainly entrepreneurs would be interested in the book and uh, interested in how mission-driven companies perceive and capitalize on marketplace opportunities. Uh, And they'll find this book to be the first comprehensive strategic analysis of uh, how these companies excel. But doing so provides uh, an awful lot of guidance for uh, another audience, which is uh, individuals that are looking to take that next step and trace out a business idea on their own. So not only those that study entrepreneurs, but those that want to be entrepreneurs. The book also takes stock of the movement more generally, and in that way offers an opportunity for mainstream companies to learn more about what they can gain from observing mission-driven companies. Uh, And, you know, I'd like to think that the book speaks to to these audiences with a a pretty accessible style that uh, weaves into the narrative stories of uh, the 150 or so companies uh, that I talk about uh, in the book. So when a company decides that they're going to differentiate uh, their product or the service along social and environmental lines, what are some of the advantages and pitfalls that might happen to them? You know, I think one way to uh, approach the problem is just to think about asking a question. When you step into a grocery or a shopping mall or you call your broker or your contractor or you click on to Amazon.com, think about what you're really looking to buy. You know, for a large slice of the consuming population, which is now estimated to be around 40 million and growing, and that's just in the U.S., purchases uh, increasingly are seen as being as much about the company as about the product or service that they create and sell. So customers increasingly are scrutinizing the social and environmental credentials of companies, looking for leadership and stewardship, and most of all, authenticity. And I talk a lot about authenticity in the book because 
uh, it is this genuine, from the ground up commitment that is very much a part of the essence of these mission-driven companies, and also very difficult uh, for established companies to imitate. And uh, one thing that we know about strategy is that the more difficult uh, a particular strategy is to imitate, the more likely it is to uh, allow a company to create uh, a long-term competitive advantage. Uh, nonetheless, there are some pitfalls with these companies. There's been a few scandals, and companies uh, that find themselves in the midst of these scandals will find that uh, consumers can react very unfavorably to a company when it hasn't lived up to its espoused principles. Uh, then there's the issue of growth, which presents its own set of challenges. Uh, for example, uh, supporting growth by bringing in investors that care only about financial returns can really unsettle and jeopardize uh, the company's mission. So now the book primarily looks at small and medium-sized companies that are mission-driven. In what way do these smaller and medium-sized companies affect the industry bellwethers? You know, uh, Chris, even in the aggregate, mission-driven companies remain a pretty small contributor to uh, our nation's GDP and global GDP. Uh, But a calculation like that really underestimates their effect on mainstream companies. Uh, One way that they've influenced these companies is by repeatedly acting uh, as a type of an early warning system for social and environmental expectations. For example, if you just look at ingredients, uh, a couple of examples would be uh, phthalates and trans fats, where mission-driven companies eliminated these where they were man-made well ahead of mainstream companies. So that as calls for increasing transparency and labeling occur, mission-driven companies aren't distracted by this. They're out building the brand instead of worrying about what will happen when ingredients are posted on labels and what uh, the consumer reaction to that might be. For example, World of Good partners with eBay, and what World of Good does is that they form a bridge between artisans in less developed countries and customers of eBay. And the partnership works in, in, in for both uh, companies. For World of Good, it provides a much larger uh, set of customers for their goods. And for eBay, what it does is provide someone that is able to assess the claims made by artisans, which would be very, very difficult for eBay to assess on its own. So in that way, you see the beginnings of learning by mainstream companies by working with mission-driven companies. Now, you have a chapter on geographic clustering, and for people with some background, they might think, well, that's kind of strange because mission-driven companies seem to be working in many different industries. So people might wonder why there is geographic clustering within mission-driven companies when there's no inherent industry tie to them. You know, this is one of the interesting uh, takeaways from the research because I would, wherever I would go, I would talk with uh, mission-driven companies, and it increasingly it became clear to me that there was something going on here that did not square with uh, our typical model of industry clustering. Uh, now, this model is known as uh, and associated with Michael Porter of Harvard Business School, where he talks about industry-specific factors, and uh, it began as a study of national competitive advantage. So. American cinema, Swiss watchmaking, Japanese microelectronics. In all of these areas, there was national prominence and leadership. Now, his his framework was very quickly adapted to regional advantages, because after all, is it America's cinematic leadership or Hollywood? 
But he's very much an economist, so when he looks at industries and what causes industries to cluster, he doesn't pay very much attention to values or society or culture. And really, if you look at values clusters, which is what I call clusters of mission-driven companies, what you're going to see is that they cluster not on industry identification, but on shared values. So let me illustrate with an example. There's a company called G-Diaper that makes biodegradable, flushable diapers. And Jason Graham Nye decided that he was going to move the company from Australia to the United States. Now, he didn't look to take and move G-Diaper to a geographical area where there were lots of other diaper makers. He looked to move it to a geographic area where the local population shared his social and environmental variables. So I began to then look at, well, what determines values clusters? We know the Porter model, but let's have a look at what might determine uh, values clusters. So where are these clusters? Well, we find them in a number of uh, American cities, such as uh, Portland, Chicago, Boulder, Colorado, Austin, Texas. And the most important thing in understanding values clusters is that they begin with indigenous regional values and that these regional values differ. So Seattle's sustainability sensibility uh, is much different than Washington's social equity focus and very different from a place like Dallas, which has very few mission-driven companies. In a place like Dallas, as somebody uh, told me, well, what we've got here is the old rancher and oil man mentality. So in other words, the values there are very much focused on individuality and militate against the kind of community focus that gives rise to values clusters. So the factors responsible for uh, values clusters arising in areas, several of them look like poor Porter kinds of variables, like having lots of local talent and having enlightened customers that drive uh, companies to be uh, very strong on social and environmental dimensions. But there are some other ones that are interesting, such as the institutional infrastructure and having not necessarily subsidies, but rather supportive policies for these companies, having educational institutions that provide programs that support those companies through experiential learning and also by providing uh, more individuals that they can hire that understand how to run a mission-driven company. But it's also interesting to note that when you have a cluster which is not within a particular industry and you've got lots of companies and they don't see each other as competitors, that they naturally aggregate and work with each other. So you have lots of cross-purchasing lots of associations that these companies engage in that, uh, again, legitimize what it is that they do and provide a means for them to speak with one voice uh, before policymakers to elicit other types of policy reactions that help them stabilize what they're doing and grow and become more important to a regional identity and economy. So is it still early days for these mission-driven companies? Are they primarily in the beginning stages of their corporate life cycle? Or are there some mission-driven companies that might be considered mature and that are bringing steady returns to their investors? Uh, you know, there are several companies that have roots going back decades, uh, but a very large cohort of these companies, uh, certainly numbering in the tens of thousands worldwide, is now reaching what might be called its adolescence. Now, several of the mature firms 
like Patagonia and Kettle Foods, have been consistently profitable for years. For some of the other ones, it's been rather more mixed. Younger companies uh, in various stages of their lifetimes report, as you might expect, mixed results as well. Uh, unfortunately, though, virtually all of the companies are uh, privately held, Chris, so they don't release financial reports to the public, uh, and they may admit to being profitable or not profitable to me, but in general, they prefer to guide discussions away from that topic. So that makes answering the type of question difficult. Uh, but estimates of uh, the growth in markets that are served by mission-driven companies does indicate that substantial opportunities are going to continue to open up for well-managed companies that can grow while staying true to their social and environmental values. Mike Russo, the author of Companies on a Mission, Entrepreneurial Strategies for Growing Sustainably, Responsibly, and Profitably. Thanks for taking time to talk to the Stanford University Press Podcast. Thanks very much, Chris. For more information about this and other titles, you can always visit our website at www.sup.org. You can also become a fan of Stanford University Press on Facebook. Just look for our fan page there. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Stanford Press Podcast. Copyright 2010, Stanford University Press. All rights reserved.